God, we lift up this city to you. God, we lift up this nation to you. God is getting heavy. Father is getting heated. In our city, God, people are hurting. God, we lift up the family of Ferguson and Laurent. God, we lift up our police department and its leadership. God, we lift up the community on Lafayette Street. As this community, as this city figures out what justice looks like in this city. God, I pray for all those in this community, oh God, that are organizing, that are calling this city to its best self. And God, we thank you for this. Bless the reading of your word this morning. Bless the preaching of your word. May your people leave here filled and on purpose and on mission for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Hey. For our guests, my name is Anthony Smith. I'm a teaching pastor here at Mission House. Um, and we're grateful if you're here for the first time. Uh, forgive me, y'all. I forgot my glasses at home. So the only person I can see is Michaela, Mimi, Arnisha, and my sister right here. This, these are all the folks I can see right now. So I just heard my wife's voice back there somewhere. I see the lamp on the table. So uh, y'all forgive me if I don't see anybody here. I, I, forgive me, I just can't see you, so amen. So uh, we are finishing up our series this morning, Jesus for President. I'm pretty excited, amen. I'm more excited that this election is about to be over, amen. I'm trying not to watch TV. I, I'm like, oh, I can't watch TV, y'all. I'm halfway, you know, not even watching Facebook, you know, to a certain extent. Um. But, uh, you know, as a lot of people are saying, you know, in uh, American politics, this is a very a pivotal and very vital election. It may determine the course of American history for a very long time in a way that's unprecedented uh, since probably uh, the Civil War. Some people are saying that. Uh, that's pretty grandiose claim. Um, but um, I do believe that our country is in a vital moment, in a serious moment of decision. And so as a church, as a nonprofit, as a pastor, I can't endorse a candidate, um, but what I can um, uh, encourage you to do is use your discernment. Well, to vote or even not to vote. Or to vote. But definitely vote your conscience. And I will encourage you that. But there's a greater uh, reality, though, that I want to point to because we live in a culture that would suggest to us that this what's going on right now is actually the ultimate story, that this is the ultimate power, what's really going on. This is the really real that we're being told on national networks and television. But the thing about the series that we've been talking about, Jesus for President, one of the things that we recognize from Scripture is this, that there is a greater power, that there's a greater reality at work in our communities, in our nation, and that is the Spirit of God, the, the presence of the risen Christ at work in our communities. Amen. So that's the claim that we've been making for the past several weeks when we've been saying this very strange use of language by saying that Jesus for president. So we've been talking about uh, many different things 
Uh, but this morning, we're going to talk about a love politics. Amen. A love politics. Turn with me to uh, Philippians. Oh, I didn't tell the crew what the passage was this morning. We'll be reading from Philippians chapter 1 through, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Wow, that's so un-American. Not looking for your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. See, here's the thing in the church today, Church folk and there's doctrines out there telling people to get their crown. But see, in the kingdom of God, there is no crown before there's a cross. In the kingdom of God, there is no glory before there's a death. But I understand. In America, we like glory. We want to be the greatest without death without suffering, without crosses, without giving up our own self-interest. I'm not talking to y'all. That's not y'all, of course. I mean, that's, I'm just speaking to the culture. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is today's passage. Um, Friday night, uh, me and actually several missioners uh, here, uh, we joined in with night crawlers uh, for a vigil, prayer vigil and prayer march like we do every Friday. Um, with some friends, and we had some friends from Charlotte come up, um, organizers down in Charlotte, because uh, we felt like it was a time to just peacefully uh, march and give vigil and just help that family and that community lament uh, the loss of one of their members, uh, Ferguson Laurent, young man that was killed uh, by the Salisbury Police Department um, while them serving a no-knock uh, warrant. And so uh, we lift up not just that family and that community, but all those involved, the chief, the mayor, uh, the city council, the, the powers that be, we lift up the whole entire community. But 
the thing, the reality is, is that there are two stories that are emerging in this community. This is when taking up your cross becomes difficult. This is when becoming Christ-like becomes difficult. Because Christ did not tell the narrative of the powerful. Y'all quiet. But I will just say this. Um, so that night, Friday night, um, as we went and marched, and even myself, you know, just as a, just if I can have a moment of transparency, I even realized my own privilege in that space as I saw some of those family members, uh, relatives of this young man, just yell out a powerful and potent and, and scary and, and sad truth about this community and some of the, the economics that are going on, some of the, uh, the inequities and injustices that are going on, but also the, you see somebody who's been traumatized by living in that community just yelling out, screaming out their own pain and hurt. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, what can I say to a young brother like that? What can I say to young sisters who are crying and hurting and they are traumatized by what's happening in their community? And I just remember thinking to myself, man, there's a distance that I have with the folks that night. And as nightcrawlers were praying and, um, and some of the nightcrawlers moved away, there were some things that, um, that were happening and they had to move away, got a little tense, got a little... Um, Folks got irritated, the family got irritated, and uh, some folks walked away from the vigil. And some of us kind of stayed just kind of just to make sure that nothing happens to the young people that were there. And as soon as the group moved away, and the police began to take formation. As soon as the group moved away, the police began to take formation. Began to flip on their body cameras. And I remember looking at Ash like, uh-oh. <laughs> and we looked at each other. We knew that if they were going to advance, that some of us there were going to form a human chain. That we had to literally stand in front of the police. We were prepared to do that. And then it hit me in that moment, this is what it means in the passage this morning when Jesus says, well, when Paul says about Jesus, when he says, and he emptied himself and came in the form of a man that was humble. And one translation says, in the form of a slave. And so, you know, this, this is having this personal experience of deciding to put one's body down, to put one's, having the intention or even having uh, the conviction, the willingness to put one's body down in solidarity with those who are been traumatized by living in a community, this is an example of what I think Paul is describing in this passage. Putting my own interests, I could have been like, yo, you know, hey, I'm outy. I could have not even just showed up. But the thing in this passage, though, that I want to uh, reveal to you, going by beyond my own personal experience in this particular passage, when we're talking about Jesus for president, Paul is writing this letter in the Philippines. He's writing this, not Philippines, uh, although he probably would write a letter to the Philippines right now. But the thing is, uh, he is writing to the community, the church that met in Philippi. 
Now, just to give you a little insight into the world of the church back then, see, back then there was no Baptists, there were no Methodists, there were no non-denominational churches, there weren't all these different tribes of churches with their own brand and denominational system, there was none of that. They were just house churches, small communities flung throughout the entire Roman Empire. And so when Paul would write a letter to the church in Philippi, it'll be like a pastor, say, in South Africa writing a letter to us in Salisbury, He'd be writing to a letter to the, all the churches in Salisbury. Not just St. John's, not just Mission House, not just Life Church, not just New Zion or whatever. It'll be a church to that entire community. The church, those who are on the path of following Jesus, he'll be right, it'll be like writing a letter to them. So, but here's the thing, though. So Paul is writing this letter, and this is what I love about Paul, and this is what I love about the New Testament. See, it's, it's like raw. Paul isn't writing from a four-star, five-star hotel. He's not writing from a presidential suite that they set, a God, that they set aside for the man of God or the apostle of God. No, they had, he had no red carpet uh, entrance into the hotel. He's not writing from the highest suite in the hotel. Paul is writing from jail. love that. I can follow leaders who've been in jail for the right thing. See, see, Paul was in jail not because, well, yeah, actually did. He, he did break the law, actually, because in Roman culture at the time, you were not allowed to have another king. You were not allowed to have and swear allegiance to another ruler except the Roman emperor of, of Rome, Caesar. But here's Paul writing from jail, encouraging other people in another part of the, uh, the, the culture, or other part of the Mediterranean world to the people in Philippi. And he's trying to encourage them. He's also thanking them for sending monies that he can give food because back then, y'all know, y'all ever had loved ones, you know, uh, that went to jail here, right? You got to go fill up the canteen, right? You got to call it in. You know, you got to go down there with your ATM. Y'all done that before? I done that, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what it is, right? Because, but see, in Paul's day, see, they didn't feed the prisoners. The only way you ate was if somebody in your family brought you food. You didn't get three meals while you were in prison in a Roman prison. Now, I've, I know people here that go into prison and said the food really ain't that good. But well, I was like, man, wow, they got something to eat, though. And did y'all know, even today, there's certain cultures in certain countries where the same practice is there. You're in prison, but they're, the state's responsibility is not to feed you. You have to rely on the, on the generosity of your community, your family, and your friends to feed you. So this is Paul's situation. Paul is writing a letter thanking them, one, for the gift that they brought to him so he can eat, have sustenance, but he's also encouraging them uh, in, their, in their continual uh, following of Jesus. And so Paul also is trying to remind them of a few things as they live in the city of Philippi. Now, here's an interesting thing about Philippi, which we get the, the name of the letter Philippians. See, Philippi is a city named after Philip II. 
You heard of Philip II? Come on, historians. Y'all know his son, Alexander the Great. Y'all know who Alexander the Great was. Probably heard about it a little bit. Probably seen movies. Probably read stories about him. But uh, Alexander the Great, the son of Philip, was a conquering king, general, who by the time he was 30 years old had literally conquered the entirety of the Mesopotamian world. He also built and led the way for the emergence of what later became the Roman Empire. And so Paul is writing to the church in Philippi whose namesake is the father of Alexander the Great. And so Paul is writing to a community in a city where the mythology, where the belief of what a king is and what glory is, is more like Alexander and Philip. We're talking about Jesus for president. And so in that world in which Paul is writing, they would have understood glory way different than Paul was trying to explain to them. They would have understood glory the way in America we often understand glory. And glory in our culture oftentimes, glory just means that I'm the biggest and I'm the baddest and I'm the most powerful and I can crush you with a snap of my finger. Matter of fact, the word glory in its root word literally means heavy. The word glory literally means heaviness. Something that is so weighty and heavy that you can't just pick it up. It's just hard. And so glory in that culture, especially when you talk about the glory of a pagan king or a king over an empire, was this understanding that this king had the weight and heaviness and power of his gods upon him, that he can exercise and demonstrate and execute the powers of their gods upon the earth with force with military might. Matter of fact, the belief was the stronger your military was, the stronger your empire was, the stronger your government and its ability to crush your foes, to defeat your foes, to oppress your foes, to subdue them, to take them as prisoners was an indication of the glory of your God. And unfortunately, saints, the church has bought into this understanding of glory. We live in a culture, we talk about Jesus for president. There is a doctrine that is believed and used to determine how our culture, how our country goes into war and to maneuver resources all over the world. It's called real politic. You ever heard this before? I remember one time I got into a debate uh, with a good Christian, a friend of mine. Uh, he's a good brother, man, solid, loves the Lord. But, you know, he was all about, you know, America being a Christian nation and everything. And we were talking about this. And I was like, I was like, man, do you think, like, at the State Department, at the Pentagon, do you think they're having Bible studies and they're praying about how to 
uh, send weapons and ships and soldiers across the other nations? Do you think they're saying, well, you know, this is what the Bible says, so let's go drop bombs over Baghdad? No. Our culture, our government follows a doctrine. Even this current president, and I know some of y'all love the current president, but I'm just going to be gospel right here. Is that okay with y'all? You know, I have another king. His name is Jesus. And so let me be prophetic for a moment. Even our current president follows a doctrine called real politic. What is the real politic? Real politic is when a government and when a nation makes decisions, not whether or not they're right or wrong but whether or not they serve the political and economic interests of the country itself. Y'all quiet this morning. I'm okay, I ain't got no my head or face nothing. I'm all right? Okay. And it's not just this current president, but it goes way back. And even a president after him will do the same, or her, him or her, uh, may do the same thing. Not may, actually will. Because that's what our country, our culture is based upon. Self-interest. Doesn't that sound familiar? Our policy, our foreign policy is based on self-interest. And for those of you like me, who fell asleep during social studies in high school. If you paid attention to the, when they told you about the history and the founding of the nation, they probably didn't get too deep with you. But what you need to know is that the founding fathers of this nation uh, were following certain philosophies that came from Europe. And one of those doctrines was based upon the teachings and philosophy of an English philosopher named John Locke. And John Locke says that what's needed is a country where people can, where we can find ways to control and manage people's self-interest. Because the assumption was that everybody, that different groups will come and they will only fight and scrap and work for their own self-interest. And so the belief was that, 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 that human civilization is a war of all against all. How can you organize and control different groups that have their own self-interests? Real politique. Even at the community level, groups have their own interests. So to the point that they'll ignore the suffering of others as long as they're getting theirs. As long as I'm getting mine, I'm good. As long as I'm getting my share of the American dream, I'm good. They just ain't tighten their bootstraps up tight enough yet. And so this is real politique when a politics, when a community, when a nation organizes itself based upon its own self-interests. But what we learn in this passage 
is that there, Paul is introducing to the Philippians who are living in Philippi, who are living in the memory of Philip and the, the, the King Alexander. They, Paul is introducing into their political imagination this understanding that, that Christ's body, that Christ himself, who is in the form of God, who is God in the flesh, disrobed himself, took off his glory, took off his privilege of being equal with God and became a slave. Something that I've been wrestling with lately is this. One of the challenges, me and Brother George had this conversation last night after we saw Dr. Strange. Hey, man, that was really good, by the way. You need to go check it out. It's a really good movie. Sorry, Danny. I'll go again, man, if you want to go. We're good? Okay. Me and George were talking about last week's sermon, about when we just got deep into Jesus' teachings and how we discovered how subversive they really were. Right, that Jesus wasn't interested in just people being really nice and kind and just, here, here's my coat if you don't have one and, you know, just turn the other cheek. I'll just take it like a man. And No, that Jesus was calling for a revolution of sorts, starting with one's heart that would spill over into the community and waste people refusing uh, to be dehumanized and to be humiliated. Jesus basically prompting people, teaching people how to regain their humility how to live in this world in such a way where they force their dignity into the world, in a world that says they have none. So we got into that, right? And we were talking, I was like, man, he was, he was telling me his own frustration about trying to explain this to certain folk. And I was telling him, I said, see, the part of the problem is, and I'm just going to say it right here, and I'll just say a pronouncement, it's okay if I make a declaration, Christianity is not a belief system. Jesus says, I am the way. Christianity is not a worldview. Look how voyeuristic that sounds. I'm going to peep out the window, a worldview. I'm going to look at the world from the other side. I'm going to look at the worldview. It's a view of the world. No, Christianity is... God throwing you into the world and to embody the love ethic of Jesus, to, to have the presence of the Holy Spirit, to be incarnation, to be flesh, to be a body. So people ask me, what is Christianity? I say it is a lived body of Christ in the world animated by the Holy Ghost to demonstrate the life, love, and justice, and peace, and righteousness of Jesus Christ in the world, real time. With real lives. But what has happened is you've been told that Christianity is a belief system. Some stuff that you just hold up in your head as long as I got my beliefs right. As long as I'm an orthodox Christian. As long as I got the right beliefs in my head. But guess what? The devil is an orthodox believer. He believes rightly. 
but he's the enemy of our souls. What am I saying? As a follower of Jesus, you can believe the right stuff, but not live the right kind of life. What I'm saying, you can believe the right stuff and oppress your neighbor. You can believe the right stuff and be indifferent to the the pain and suffering of other human beings in your community. You can say all the creeds you want. You can say all the belief stuff you want about what you believe about Jesus. Brother came the other day, do you believe in the Holy Trinity? I was like, yes, I do. I believe in the Holy Trinity. But because I do, I will lay my body down with the oppressed in this community. Why? Because that's what the Son did in the Trinity. So what are you doing? How are you living Trinity in this community? Because here's the thing. If you don't live it, you really don't believe it. Or you you do not understand it. See, as Christians, we're not called to just believe in the resurrection. We're called to be resurrection in our community. Isn't that something? Theologians call it orthopraxy. Right practice. It's not enough to just believe the right stuff. And so, so when Paul's saying here, you know, this, this, this particular hymn here, this is called a hymn to Christ or the hymn of Christ. This was like an early church soundtrack. So if Paul had an iTunes, if he had a, an iPod, they still use iPods. They just use their phones. They, they still do? People still use They still make iPods? Well, anyway, so if Paul had an iPod or an iPhone or a, 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 a droid or whatever, he would have this hymn on here. This is part of the soundtrack of the early church. And I tell y'all, you know, soundtracks are important. Because what soundtracks do, soundtracks give meaning and heart and soul to a movement. This is Paul's soundtrack. And it was subversive because why? There were other soundtracks in the culture in which Paul lived. There were soundtracks about glory and power and kingdoms. Well, Paul says, I got another song for you. It's a song rooted in the love of God and the love of one's neighbor. Paul says, verse 6 or verse 5 in Philippians 2, in your relationship with one another, have this same mindset. So what Paul is saying, basically, you got to have this same soundtrack playing over and over and over again in your own soul. You got to have this same soundtrack played before you. Write it down. Meditate on it. And I challenge you this week to write down this psalm, to write down this hymn that Paul gives. And, and so one historian said that the early church, when they would sing this song, they would sing it to music. And so if you get creative, we got some songwriters in the crib in the house this morning. I want to challenge you to make a song out of this. Make it good, you know. You know, you can put a little, you know, you can put some classical in there. You know, you can put, make a little hip-hop in it. Put a little beat to it. I love soundtracks. And that's one of my own personal 
uh, weird obsessions. When a good movie comes out with a good soundtrack, I'll actually listen to the soundtrack before I listen to the movie. Um, one of my favorite soundtrack or uh, co uh, musical composers or um, who writes compositions for uh, movie scores is, uh, is uh, Hans Zimmer. Right? Y'all heard of Hans Zimmer? He wrote, um, back in the day, he did, he wrote Axel F. You remember Axel F? No, don't do that? Okay. All right. That was? He didn't, he didn't do Axel F? Oh. Okay. So Hans Zimmer, and this is just a little insight here. What the movie director would do with Hans Zimmer, and Hans Zimmer has written these powerful compositions for movies. And y'all probably have seen some of these movies like Inception. Um, trying to think. Uh, Last Samurai. You're like, okay, I don't know what any of these movies are. Uh, the Batman, right, how powerful that music is. But the thing that's interesting, though, is that um, a part of his creative process, the, the, the director would not send him the full movie script to, 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 to create the movie score. But what the director would do, he would request a one-page summary of the movie, not knowing what the scenes are, not knowing what the dialogue is. They would send just one-page summary of an entire movie. And what he would do is take that one-page summary and create the composition for the entire movie. He would find one theme or a couple of themes and create a composition to move the story along. To get the, the people that will be watching in them, get them caught up in the story itself. Because to, to, of what music does, music gets into you in ways that words can't. See, music gets into your body. Music gets into your soul. That's why right now, if I played y'all the hot jam right now, especially the young folk, if I start playing that thing, they probably jump up and start doing it, whatever the, the lightest thing is. And some of us old heads, they put in some old hip-hop joints, some Rock Kim, Eric B and Rock Kim. We jump up and start singing the lyrics, follow the leader, Rock Kim, and say, we probably throwing our hands up in the air like we just don't care because our bodies have been in tune to the music. I ain't going to leave my elders out. They start throwing some temptations out there or some, uh, you know, some Bob Dylan, Leonard Skinner. Your body would remember it. Your body would move to the song. And so Paul would say, I got a song for you. It's a song about God becoming a human being and shedding his privilege and shedding his status to become a slave. To become himself oppressed by other human beings. What a song. What kind of song would that look like in the church today when we got a lot of songs about winning? We just want to win. But in the kingdom, you got to die before you win. 
Matter of fact, the Bible don't even talk about winning. The Bible talks about being faithful. The Gospels talk about not winning. The Gospels talk about victory. See, victory and winning are two different things. So there's this song, this soundtrack of the kingdom, if you will. What does it do? And so one of the things that I tell people, and when you read the New Testament, and when you read the Gospels, and when you read uh, Paul, you know, Paul gets such a hard time in the church sometimes. Uh, but one of the things that Paul would do is he would say, all right, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. Um, and also, uh, this is what Jesus is doing. He would say, this is what's up with God. And then he would flip it and say, because that is the case, this is what should be happening among you. If this God is in present among you. So here's the situation. So Paul is saying that if this self-emptying Christ, the risen Christ, this God who shares his privilege and power, if he is present in your community, guess what? It should look a certain kind of way. Y'all should be dancing to the music, a different kind of music. You should have a dance that reflects the music. Music like... We're not here to take the city for Jesus. We're here to serve the city in the name of Jesus. We're here to speak truth to power in this city in the name of Jesus. Paul saying, when you sing this song, a love politic emerges, not a real politic. But a love politic, what begins to happen? Paul tells you, he says, if you got the same mind as Christ, and I love this, is verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And he begins to tell the song. He begins to give the same soundtrack. And that word mindset is this. It means direction and purpose. Direction and purpose. This is the mindset. This is how I'm thinking. This is how I'm living in the community. Notice what he says. Back to verse 1. If this Jesus, if this self-emptying Jesus is in you and you are in Christ. See, see, here's the thing, y'all, man. Those, those are some of the most dangerous words in the New Testament. Don't take this lightly. When you say that you are in Christ... That's some serious business. Why? Because if you're in Christ, you got to look like the song. And what happens? Paul says, he says, if you're being united with Christ, if you are united with Christ, not that have an idea of Christ or some belief system about Christ, but if you are in solidarity with them, if, if Christ is in you and you are in Christ and you're bound to the hip with each other, if you are united with Christ, Paul says, if there's any comfort from his love, if, if there's any communion or sharing in the spirit, 
If any tenderness and compassion didn't make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit, this is what it looks like when you are singing the song and the song is in your body and the song is in your soul and the song is in your mind. Paul is saying you've been having to have one mind, same love. And then he says this, you do nothing out of selfish ambition if this song is in your soul. or vain conceit, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Could you imagine what it would look like to have communities that pop up all over this community where they, they, they said our number one value is to value other people other than ourselves? What would that look like? Not looking to your own interest, but each to you of the interest of others. Can you imagine a church, a community who have, who, are, who have embodied this song, who have engulfed this song, they have drunk this song, they have heard this song, and they decide that it is not our interest that we'll be looking after, but the interest of other people. Could you imagine if every church in Salisbury decide this, that we're no longer going to look after our own interests, we're no longer going to look uh, for influence in the city, but we are going to allow ourselves to be influenced by the risen Christ. My prayer for our church is that we not become an influential church but that we become a church that is influenced by the self-emptying God, Jesus Christ. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And then it begins to lay it down says he emptied himself verse 7 rather he made himself nothing that is so contrary to what we've been told about Jesus in this culture how do we get from a Jesus that says Paul says in the song that he made himself nothing To another emperor who just want to take cities and crush people and oppress people and harm people with their words and exclude people based upon their race, their sexual orientation, their gender, their social economic status. How do we get from this Jesus to the Jesus of power and Americanism? He made himself nothing. That's why they thought Christians were crazy, y'all. Y'all thought they would, y'all think like today, right? You know, Christians think they're weird because we believe in God and we, we you know, we want to pray in school and, you know, 
we, we take all these different political stances. We think that's what it was to be weird back then. No, Christians was weird because we said our king was nobody. He was one of the oppressed. And taking the vader in nature of a servant. So, Jesus for president. If Jesus was president, one candidate would mock him, would tweet about him. The other candidate would put him in the basket of deplorables. I challenge you today. Who's your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? You sure about that? That's some dangerous stuff. That's a dangerous confession. Amen. Amen. I'm going to leave you all alone. I'm going to leave you all alone. I'm just going to leave you with this. Life continues after next week. No matter what happens. That ain't the ultimate soundtrack. We are still called to follow Jesus. We are still called to speak truth. We are still called to self-empty ourselves of our privilege. We are still called to stand in solidarity with those who are oppressed in our community. We're still called to become nothing like Jesus. Let me qualify that. I'm not saying you become less valuable, you become less loved, but what I'm saying is you become less ego. You become less self-interested to the point where you are indifferent to the pain and suffering of other people. I know. That's my altar call, to be like this. I want to challenge you this week. Take this song, write it on a journal, write it on a pad, write it on a post-it note. This one song in Philippians chapter 2, write those words down. And I want you to just say them over and over again, quietly to yourself. Every day this week, whether you're a morning person or afternoon or evening person, I want you to meditate on this. Because one of the things I want to give to you, one of the ways that we self-empty as Christians is a Christian practice called meditation and prayer. See, when you learn to meditate, when you learn to be still for a few moments and just to meditate and think about these words and, and the potency and the depths of these words, what begins to happen over time is your ego is checked. How have I not been nothing? How have I not self-emptied this week at work in the community? That's the homework for this week, y'all. Is that cool? That's what's up. All right. I look forward to talking to y'all about it during the week in the group. Amen.